theyeshiva.net. And now, without further ado, to tonight's esteemed guest and speaker, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson was the first rabbi invited by the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote to the U.S. military chief of chaplains and the NSA. At the conference, he was hailed as the Jewish Billy Graham. (laughs) One of America's premier Jewish scholars in Torah and Hashkafa, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Y.Y. Jacobson is one of the most sought-after speakers in the Jewish world. He lectures to Jewish and non-Jewish audiences in six continents and every state in the nation and serves as a teacher and mentor to tens of thousands of people globally. A warm and motivational speaker, Rabbi Jacobson has lectured on Hasidic teachings to Jewish and non-Jewish audiences and published scores of articles on Jewish thought. Please give a warm welcome to Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your kind and gracious introduction. As I reflect on this evening, I recall that anecdote about Professor Albert Einstein, that Viennese Jew, who, by the way, his theory on black holes 100 years ago has just been vindicated as they finally captured the first photograph of a black hole only 55 million light years away with the width of 25 billion miles and it looks like a bagel. (laughs) Einstein, who's considered the greatest scientist of the 20th century, was also a little absent-minded. And once he was traveling on a train in Europe. You know the trains in Europe, the conductor would go from cabin to cabin, ask everybody to give their ticket, punch a hole in the ticket, and he approaches Professor Albert Einstein. Dr. Einstein, your ticket, please. He searches right pocket, the left pocket, his pants, his jacket, his hat, under his chair, his briefcase. The ticket is gone. The whole train is looking. And the conductor says, Professor Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. It's obvious that you've bought the ticket. It's fine. I'll move on. And he moves on. Einstein gets up. And at this point, crawls down on the floor. Prostrates himself completely. As though it was a mosque. Searching and searching. The poor man is searching everywhere. And the conductor comes back and says... Professor Einstein, I told you already, I know who you are. I trust that you have purchased a ticket. There's no need for you to find this ticket. He says, no, 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 I must find the ticket. He says, I trust you, it's fine. You could stay on the train. He says, listen, I know who you are, you could stay. Einstein says, I also know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) Israel's defense minister for many years was Moshe Dayan, 
Moshe Dayan, you remember him? The patch on the eye. Was driving on an Israeli highway 140 miles, kilometers per hour. Which in Israel is not that fast. (laughs) And a policeman stops him. Rolls down the window. Moshe Dayan? General Dayan, you? You ought to serve as a role model to Israeli society. You're driving like a madman. I have to quadruple your summons. And Moshe Dayan looks at the police officer and he says, My dear officer, you look at me. I have only one eye. Now what would you like me to do with that one eye? Look at the speedometer or look at the highway? Uh, Now, <laughs> I just got it. I, I once shared this anecdote, and somebody in the crowd, my, it's a real a Jewish question. Did he get the ticket? <laughs> so since I'm a New Yorker, I'm not as polite as some of you Texans. I told them you remind me of my grandmother, what she said. She said there are three types of Jews, shlemiels, shlemazels, and nudniks. And the difference is, the shlemiel pours the soup on the shlemazel. The nudnik wants to know, what type of soup was it? I don't know if Moshe Dayan got a ticket, and I don't know if Albert Einstein found his ticket. But I do know that there is a moral in the story. And that is, in life and in history, we often only look at the speedometer, and we fail to see the highway. We fail to understand where we are going. What is our destination? And hence, it is a true privilege to be here this evening celebrating the 16 years of the Dallas Torah Day School. What I, found uni- what I find unique about this institution of great Jewish education that you have just read about great testimony through the texts and WhatsApp messages of the moms and the lionesses of the Jewish community in Dallas. There's really six features. You know, the Talmud in Tractate Kiddushin, page 29, says somewhat of a strange, quite an interesting comment. The Talmud says, what are our obligations of a parent to a child? An interesting question. What are the obligations of a parent to a child? And the Talmud lists six obligations that you wouldn't expect. Talmud says, I quote, Daddy is responsible to make sure that his son was circumcised. Responsibility number two, has to redeem his child. The first male born in a Jewish family has to be redeemed from the Kohen commemorating the exodus of Egypt, daddy is responsible. Number three says the Talmud, parents are obliged to teach their Jewish children Torah. Number four, you've got to marry them off. Daddy is responsible to find them a good Jewish girl. The Talmud didn't have to say the word Jewish. And marry him or her off. Number five, got to teach your child a trade, a profession, an umnos, a craft. Number six, 
Got to teach your children how to swim. Now, I would have expected that Talmud would say, got to make sure they have food, some love, some shelter, a list of six things. Circumcision, redemption, teaching Torah, marrying them off, teaching a craft, and finally, learning how to swim. What about making sushi, cooking up a Chinese meal, learning how to ski, water ski, play baseball, (laughs) football, basketball, learn, teach your child how to swim. But the truth is, my dear friends, the sages in the Talmud expressed something very profound about what our children need most from us. When I ask myself as a father or a mother, as a mentor or an educator, as a leader or a teacher, as a biological or spiritual parent, what are my duties, what are my privileges, what are my responsibilities? The Talmud says our children need six components. And each of them represents a paradigm, a Weltanschauung, that encompasses all of life. The first thing my child needs is, the first thing our children need is identity. The bris represents identity, who you are. The gift of knowing who you are, where you come from, part of which story do you represent. The ability to wake up in the morning and appreciate my identity, my history, my narrative my place in the world. I know a fellow who's been in therapy for 29 years, went on vacation to the Bahamas, writes a postcard to his therapist and says, I'm having a great time here. I wish you were here to tell me why. (laughs) The ability for me to know who I am and what is my place in the world. Spoke the other day with a prominent rabbi professor in Yeshiva University in New York. His name is Rabbi J.J. Schechter. And he shared with me something he heard from an Israeli man, a man named Aryeh Eldad. Story firsthand, he shared this with me on the phone. Aryeh Eldad has a very interesting job in Israel. He goes around to high schools, to the graduating class, to the seniors, and helps them prepare for the following year when they will be drafted into the IDF, the Israeli army, as you know. Service in the Israeli army is obligatory for three years, and it's not easy for a 17-year-old teenager to know that next year he's going to be mobilized into an army that faces threats from all of its sides. And we all know what Israel just endured two days ago. 24 hours, more than 600 rockets aimed at civilians, men, women, and children. And these 18-year-old boys are drafted to defend the country. We who grew up in the United States of America don't even begin to fathom what that means for an 18-year-old kid. We're 18 years old and we're busy having attitudes towards our mothers and fathers, of course, and arguing, can we take the car? When we come home, we don't come home. Mother. They're in the army at 18, and it's very difficult for many of them. So Ariel Dowd, who's a very charismatic young man, goes to high schools, and he speaks to the kids. And he empowers them, and he inspires them, and he explains to them, especially children 
youngsters, teenagers who are having a lot of emotional resistance and difficulty and he spends time with them and he explains to them the value and the story and the history and what Israel is about and what the Jewish homeland is about. And the last thing he does with these children, with these children, I'm calling them children, teenagers, he takes them to Har Herzl, to Mount Herzl. I'm sure some of you have been there. That's the cemetery where prime ministers are buried, but also thousands of Israeli soldiers are buried. And as the rabbi, our dear principal, spoke today, it was Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day in Israel. We're coming from it yesterday. And there are thousands of soldiers, and there are sections. Those who died in the battle of 1948, Independence War, 1956, Sinai Campaign, 1967. 1973, 1982, until the last Gaza War, 2014. Sections. In the section of 1948, there's a section where 70 soldiers are buried. They all died the same day in the Independence War of 1948. And these teenagers noticed a tombstone. And on the tombstone was engraved the day of the yard site, the day the soldier died, serial number, the name of the platoon, where the death happened, but instead of a name, it said Almoni. You know what Almoni means in Hebrew? The anonymous one. And they turn to Mr. Eldad, they say, who writes the anonymous one on a tombstone? And he says, I'll tell you the story of the soldier. He was a lone survivor of the Holocaust. He lost his family. He came to what was then called Palestine on one of the illegal ships under the British mandate. As he arrived to what was then called Palestine, they gave him a gun. And they said, we're being attacked by seven armies. We need fighters. And the next day he fell in battle. The next day... It was a famous battle known, the Castilla battle. Seventy soldiers died. The road near Jerusalem. And when they buried the soldier, they discovered the double tragedy. It wasn't only that he was killed. They didn't know his name. His comrades who he fought with for a day might have known his name, but they were all dead. There was nobody to ask. There was literally nobody to ask, who is this person? They didn't know. And they buried him. And they wrote on his tombstone, it's there, you could check it out. Almoni, the anonymous soldier. And these boys, these teenagers, are looking at this grave. And Ariel Dot says, and I want you to understand why this boy took a gun when he was just coming from Auschwitz, Birkenau. And he said, because these Jews knew that in 1938, when so many nations met in Evian in France, and the question was, what are we supposed to do with the Jews? There was not a single country who said the Jews could come to us. Initially, Adolf Hitler, Yamach Shemai, didn't plan to exterminate the Jewish people. He wanted to expel every Jew from his territory. There was nowhere to go. These Jews knew this in their blood. And for them to be able to come to a place that every Jew could call home, our eternal home. What's the definition of home? Definition of home, I think it was Frost who said, 
that when you come there, they got to let you in. <laughs> That's the definition of home. We come there, they got to let you in. Jews didn't have a home. So they took their guns and they fought to be able to give the Jewish people their home. Restore them to their ancient homeland after 2,000 years. The teenagers were very moved and then they turned to Aryeh Yaldan and they said, but Aryeh, who says Kaddish for this boy? Who commemorates his yard site? Who mentions his name? He said, nobody. There was nobody to tell. They didn't know who it was. No family? They can't be family because we don't know who to look for. If we would have a name, we could look for family. They said, DNA. Today there's DNA. He said, we could take the DNA, but who are we going to match it up with? We're going to ask 14 million Jews to come to Tel Aviv and test their DNA? The boys said a Kaddish right there. And they went home. A few months later, they were drafted into the Israeli army. A year passed. Arya Yildad forgot the story. But around a year, a year and a half later, on the yard site of this anonymous soldier, he gets a call from those boys who are in the army. And they say, Arya, today is the yard site of the anonymous soldier. Matsanu et We found his family. You guys are Meshigah. It's been 70 years. What would you find the family? You don't know a name. What you find the family? We found the family. The family is going today to his grave to commemorate his yard site. To pray for his soul. To learn Torah in his merit. To give charity in his merit. To learn the Mishnayis. To celebrate his life and his sacrifice. Aryeh thought something happened to them. He says, this is fictional. It can't be. He said, come to the grave. You'll see we discovered his family. He comes to the grave. And who's at the grave? That entire group of soldiers. And they said to him, Matsanu et Anachnu We have discovered his family. We are his family. And since then, it's been only a few years, they come every year on the yard site to say Kaddish. They gather in his merit and in his honor. Identity. The gift of identity. Knowing who you are. Knowing that you're an indispensable part of an extraordinary nation that has journeyed on our planet for close to 4,000 years. That we're brothers, that we are sisters, that we're linked in powerful faith and in powerful destiny and charged with the divine mission, to repair the world under the kingdom of God, the gift of identity. But the Talmud says, not enough. Parents have to be able to liberate a child. Liberate a child? Set your child free. What does it mean to set your child free? It means we got to teach our children that they're never in shackles. They are never victims of their circumstances. In every situation, they have the ability to choose freedom and to use their circumstances as a springboard for growth, success, and awareness. Today, 
this psychology of victimhood is all over the place. Blame this one and that one. You know the fellow who came into a bar, asked for a drink, took the glass, threw it at the bartender. The bartender says, what are you doing? He says, I suffer from uncontrollable rage and I'm so embarrassed. Okay, I forgive you. Next night, same thing, takes the glass, throws it. What's this? said, my mother was an alcoholic. My father was a narcissist. I have this crazy anger in me. I'm so embarrassed. Okay, I understand. Next night, the same thing. He says, what are you? He says, I'm dysfunctional. I'm mentally unstable. I'm completely, completely fragmented and dejected and broken. I'm very embarrassed with myself, but this is who I am. He says, listen, you can't throw glasses on me every night. You got to go to therapy. You don't come back here without therapy. If, I, you do, if you do, I call the police. Comes back a year later. Fills up his glass with Crown Royal. L'chaim makes a toast, downs it, takes the glass, throws it at the bartender. Says, what now? He says, I went to therapy and I'm not embarrassed anymore. <laughs> we, we have to be able to teach our children the gift of Freedom. The gift of freedom is I may not always have the ability to control the circumstances, but I can always control my attitude towards those circumstances, how I deal with them, how I see them. I'm always charmed by that couple in 1940 who went on a honeymoon. And where'd they go on a honeymoon? They rented a rustic cabin in a forest for three days and three nights, looking forward to this real honeymoon imbued with nature but the first night they were visited by a woodpecker and the woodpecker decided to peck 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 away all night they couldn't sleep and at dawn they experienced what Rabbi Katz experienced this morning the downpour of rain and since the woodpecker managed to pierce a hole right above their heads they now experience Noah's flood during the first night of their honeymoon. Soaked, they spend the day drying their clothes and their blankets. And the next night, the woodpecker came back for another romantic evening. Raining again, and the third night as well. And now it was time for the honeymoon to end. And they got into their car and they're driving home. Now if it was a Jewish couple, what would the conversation look like? I don't know about Dallas, but I know about New York. I told you we should have gone to the Hilton or the Ritz-Carlton. Not some stupid rustic cabin because you decided you got to be bohemian and uninhibited and, and cool and, and creative. It's your fault, no, it's your fault, no, it's your fault, you're obnoxious, you're rude. For the next 60 years, the fight would continue every night, even if in different words, which is what happens with many, many couples. Instead, the woman turned to her husband and said, that was an unbelievable honeymoon. That was extraordinary, it was incredible. Now we just have to figure out why it was unbelievable. <laughs> and since he was an animator, she suggested to her husband to turn this into a cartoon, which created the Woody Woodpecker cartoon. And I'm reading an article 50 years later, 60 years later, and a journalist asks this couple, this couple 
Walter and Gracie Lance, what was the greatest night of your life? And without thinking, without skipping a heartbeat, they said, when the woodpecker came to visit us on our honeymoon. That's what gave us our wealth and our affluence and our success and our impact. That was hands down the greatest night of our life. I think about a little boy, a boy named Clint Pulver, who couldn't sit still in class. Now today we have a diagnosis for these types of things. But you know, when I was a kid in yeshiva, you were a kid in yeshiva, there was one diagnosis for everybody. It was called a frask. A patch here and a patch there, the same generic diagnosis for everybody. Remember? I can't sit still. So today you go for testing and evaluations for three years. We figure out why you can't sit still. In my class, when you didn't sit still, these were the genius pedagogues who molded the Jewish nation of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. <laughs> and Clint Pulver would sit at his desk, as a, much better than I'm doing it, with a rhythm, but nonstop. And the teacher would say, stop! For two minutes he would stop, and then again, tapping his finger, the kids would say, Stop! Sent to the principal's office. The principal's office says, I want you to sit in the class with both of your hands under your legs. You sit on your hands. You know how comfortable that is. All day. It worked for 35 seconds. And then he was back to tapping on the desk. And finally a new teacher came in. And after a few days, the teacher looks at him and says, Mr. Pulver, Stay in the classroom after the class is over, after everybody is dismissed. He's a little kid, he's eight years old, and everybody is dismissed. And he thinks, okay, he's finally going to be expelled from the school. And the teacher looks at him and he says, Clint, you know, people say that you have a challenge, you have a problem. I don't see it that way. I want to give you something. And he opens a drawer, and he takes out a drum, drum set, and he gives it to him. And he says, I think that you were created to be a drummer. And that's why your brain keeps on telling your hands, come on, get on with your vocation. <laughs> why don't you do what you're supposed to do? You don't have a problem. You're a great drummer. Today, he's a world-renowned drummer. The brilliance of that teacher was, instead of seeing it as a problem, even as a challenge, he understood this is your opportunity this is your uniqueness. We all have woodpeckers in our life who drill holes and cause the downpour to make our sheets wet and our bodies moist. What I do with that depends if I am a free person or I am a victim. Until today, Clint attributes his great success to one Mr. Jensen the teacher who bought him that drum set and gave it to him and turned his failure into a story of success and celebration. But then the Talmud says, it's not just circumcision, it's not just redemption. You got to teach your child Torah. And in simple English, we call it values. Teach your child Torah. I'm reading 
this book by Steve Jobs' daughter. You saw that book? Very sad. Steve Jobs is a household name. One of the greatest inventors of our generation. He changed all of our lives. Yes, you're texting as I'm speaking. He has changed your life and he's changed my life because a few years ago nobody texted when I spoke. (laughs) They just fell asleep. Now they're texting. Steve Jobs changed everybody's life. His mind was extraordinary, there's no question. But, I hope he rests in peace, but his relationship to his children, his identity as a father, how painful to read that he denied being a father of this daughter until the DNA proved it and he couldn't deny it anymore and then he shared with her mummish almost nothing struggling as his ex was struggling with multi-jobs to be able to support her family and I asked myself what does this mean and then it's obvious it's what the Torah teaches that brilliance and genius does not have to do with values you could be a brilliant brilliant mind and still behave like a beast You can be a self-centered, obnoxious, rude person. The most PhDs came from Germany before the Second World War. You know about the boy who was celebrating his bar mitzvah and he came to his mother and said, what should I talk about at the speech? His mother says, talk about family. We have such a beautiful family. He says, what's so beautiful about our family? She says, you know where we come from? He says, no. She says, let me tell you about my mother and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, great people. This is where we come from. And the boy says, where do we come back? Where do we come from all the way back? All the way back? God created heaven and earth. He created Adam and Eve. They had children. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Comes to his father. Father was a graduate from Duke. Daddy, where do we come from? All the way back. Daddy says, we have evolved. Took 15.3 billion years. But we have evolved from our cousins and from our ancestors, the chimpanzees, the apes, the monkeys, and they, they evolved from others. And how did it begin? It began with prebiotic soup or a chalent of gas and bacteria that exploded. And here we are. Comes back to his mother. Says, I'm very confused about my bar mitzvah speech. I want to talk about our ancestry. You tell me we come from Adam, Eve, God. Daddy tells me We come from apes, chimpanzees, bacteria, and gas. Who got it right? And his mother looks at him and says, son, there's no contradiction. Your father was talking about his side of the family. I'm talking about my side of the family. I want to know how a 19-year-old boy in California on the dean's list in University of California grew up in the house of a father who was a science teacher, a nice home in California. How does he walk into a shul the last day of Pesach and he has 50 unused bullets? Lori Kay was the first target. He wanted to murder every child and every Jew in shul. He had 50 unused bullets. His rifle got jammed. That was the miracle Rabbi Goldstein talks about. But besides the 50 bullets, he had ammo for much more. That was his 
evil agenda. Where does a 19-year-old boy, an American, handsome, good-looking, smart, successful kid come to this? Our dear leader of the Federation mentioned the shooting Colorado last week, a few days of South Carolina. I look at all of this. Where is this coming from? And we have to say one truth. And that's the truth that people are not ready to admit. And that is, our Jewish schools have a lot of problems. I'm talking about New York, not Dallas. We got challenges, trust me. We got challenges when it comes to education. I grew up in Brooklyn. A few minyanim of Jews there. There's better schools and there's horrible schools. But not like a single yeshiva in the world. Not a single Jewish school in the world has a metal detector. When that boy went into, where was it, Sandy Hook in Connecticut and gunned down 26 kids and they said, he's autistic. I have autistic relatives. I have autistic friends. They would never think of shooting a person. You know why? Because the basis of a Jewish school and the basis of a Jewish home is you teach children the infinite value of life. Schools are not only made to give children information. They're geared to inculcate the values, character, to know the indispensable value of every human being, that every human being was carved in the image of God, that life has a dignity that is unwavering, unequivocal, and absolute. We know that in our community, again, Dallas excluded, we got our share of liars and deceivers and charlatans. But somehow this we don't have. Why not? Because for thousands of years, mothers have given their infants in the milk. They have bequeathed to them those two words of Moses. Choose life, a love of life. In Starbucks the other day, there was a rabbi, a priest, and a minister. You're laughing already. (laughs) Drinking a latte for $9.50. Pretty cheap. What are they going to talk about? They spoke about what they would like to hear people say at their funeral. And the priest says, I would like to hear people say at my funeral, he was a true servant of the Lord. And the minister says, I would like people to say at my funeral, he was a real friend. Rabbi, what about you? What would you like to hear at your funeral? And the rabbi says, I would love to hear somebody say, I think he's moving. (laughs) We are a nation that is obsessed with life. We love life. We cherish life. And we know the most important thing that children have to know is that what God cares above anything, more than anything else, is that you should be a mensch. That you should be kind to others. That the world should be a place of kindness and goodness. That we don't only have rights, we also have responsibilities towards each other, towards the world, and towards our Creator. That we're accountable in life. They don't teach this to children today, believe it or not. And don't take this education for granted. So the Talmud says you got to teach your child Torah values. Right from wrong. Today there's a vitamin that people are afraid to give their children. The vitamin is called the N-vitamin. No. We're afraid of the word no. As though the word no became the devil of the century. (gasps) You're going to say no? You're going to be accused of child abuse. 
The healthiest thing is for a father and a mother to sometimes say no. Not out of anger, out of love. Boundaries. There's right and there's wrong. This is good, this is bad. This is moral, this is immoral. Teach your child values, Torah. This we do and this we don't do. I'm speaking to a bunch of teenagers. And imagine you have this huge roof in your building. Great football field. One problem. There's no fence. You can't have a good game of football. Every time somebody tackles you, you're scared to fall off the roof. Imagine somebody builds a fence. Now you can have a good football game. Now life can be fun. Fences in life don't create a stifling of creativity. They create the security and the confidence for life to be fun. For life to be a good football game. You can run, you can spring in and life and hacking and kratzen and shove and tackle. This is just old Yiddish uh, skewer stuff. You can suck the marrow out of the football game because there's a fence. And I want to tell you something special about you shouldn't take this for granted. In the early 1900s, Jewish community in America was becoming stronger and stronger, but many of our leaders did not invest in Jewish education. You know what they did invest in? They built beautiful synagogues and temples. They built beautiful JCCs and Jewish community centers. They built great social, philanthropic organizations dedicated to kindness and philanthropy and giving. And it's amazing, social networks and great alliances but they did not believe that you have to invest in Jewish education. And millions of our own brothers and sisters in America were lost. Were lost from our people. Because the most important investment a Jewish community can make above anything else is invest in those children. Tell those children who they are, where they come from, where they're going. And that's how you create eternity. That's how you create continuity. An investment in a Jewish school is not a luxury for the Jewish community. That is the oxygen of a Jewish community. But my friends, the Talmud says, not enough circumcision, redemption, teach Torah. You got to marry him and her off. Today it sounds strange. You're going to marry your son off, really? I once asked a rabbi, what's your mission in your shul? He said three things. I hatch them, I match them, and I dispatch them. But in today's world, you're going to marry me off? You're going to marry off your 26-year-old boy or girl? Daddy, mix out! What does the Talmud mean? The Talmud means something so precious. you got to teach your child the value of family. Another value that has been forgotten today. With all of our open-mindedness and empathy, which is good to some degree, we have failed to remember that for thousands of years, the greatest institution that has proven to be the most successful environment to raise stable, happy, healthy, wholesome children is a husband and a wife who get along who create a beautiful family and who are ready to make sacrifices for that family. The first time it says in the Hebrew Bible the word not good 
Not good. Do you know when? Lo tov. It's not good. Lo tov adam levado. It's not good when man is alone. <laughs> That's the first no good. It's the relationships. It's the power of family, the value of family, the connection of family. And yes, the knowledge that we sacrifice a lot for family and for relationships and for marriage. And we work hard to make our marriages work and create a wholesome, loving, nurturing home that children desperately need. They need it for their own upbringing and they need it for their own future to learn from role models what it means to bring children into the world, how you bring children into the world. I'm not being judgmental of people who choose different paths. I always remember what our sages say, don't judge your friend until you don't reach his space and have to deal with his challenges. But we should never allow our empathy to people's challenges to obliterate the most powerful institution and civilization that has proven the most successful for children. And it's called a stable family, a stable home, and a beautiful marriage. But the Talmud says there's one more thing you got to teach your child, a trade, an umnus. And it doesn't only mean he got to make a living, of course. There's something deeper. Teaching him or her a trade means they could become independent. They can take responsibility for their life. They can make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. That's the only way you become independent. If you always ride your training wheels, you will never fall. When I take you off the training wheels, we all had that experience, and your boy is screaming, no, 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 and he gets on the bike and he falls. But one day he's riding his own bike. Michelangelo said, I am not afraid if you aim high and miss. I am far more afraid if you aim low and you never miss. You hit. I want you to aim high and miss. I want you to own your life. I want you to be the author of your own biography. I want you to be able to take responsibility for yourself to realize the divine power invested in your soul, in your psyche. You know about the Jew who walks into Barnes and Nobles, goes over to the woman behind the counter, and he says, I'm looking for the self-help section. And she says, if I'll tell you where it is, it will defeat the purpose. The great idea of Judaism is that God wanted us to be partners with him in the creation and the repairing and the fixing of the universe. I want to teach my child a trade to be able to own his or her life. And that means to be able to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And finally, number six, teach him how to swim. What does that mean? Teach your child how to keep his or her head above water. Because life is tumultuous. I was in Newark Airport many, many hours today. And the excuse was no landing in Dallas. Because the weather is stormy. And when we finally took off and we were arriving close to Dallas, we felt the weather. (laughs) Suspended five or 10,000 miles above in the air, we felt the turbulence. 
And it was not easy, and I turned to my fellow sitting near me, I said, this is not for the weak-hearted. The Talmud says, life is going to have turbulence. The waters are sometimes tumultuous. Life is not always a serene cruise on tranquil waters. Sometimes it's a fierce battle. You have to be able to teach your child how to swim, to be able to keep their head above water, not to allow the stress of life to drown them, to overwhelm them, to be able to be connected to their core self, to be able to be anchored in reality, to be able to have resilience. Sir Edmund Hillary was a New Zealander mountain climber. He tried climbing Mount Everest in 1952, unsuccessfully. Almost made it to the top, but he did not. But in Britain, they decided to honor him. And at the dinner, they had a huge portrait of Mount Everest in behind him. And Sir Edmund Hillary got up to speak, and they gave him the standing ovation for his attempts to scale the heights of the mountain, even though he made it almost to the top, but he couldn't make it to the top. In the middle of his speech, he turned around to the portrait, and he starts talking to the portrait. And he says, Mount Everest, you beat me. You defeated me. You won me. I lost. I lost the battle. Your heights were too daunting for me to conquer. But let me tell you something, Mount Everest. That was only the first time around. The second time around, I am going to beat you. You know why? Because Mount Everest, you're big, you're mighty, you're powerful, you're tall. But you stopped growing. I did not stop growing. A year later, in 1953, he made it to the top of Mount Everest. That ability of resilience, that ability to be able to know that no stress in life has to define you. You can define it. You're an ambassador of the divine. You're an ambassador of love, light, hope. The sixth characteristic that the Talmud says, Tati and Mami have to teach their child. So, my dear friends, I get a call from Israel. <laughs> On the phone is the chief rabbi of Netanya. His name is Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau. His father... Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau was the former chief rabbi of Israel and chief rabbi of Tel Aviv and chief rabbi of Netanya. He succeeded his father. His brother, Rabbi David Lau, is the present Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau shares this with me. He gets a call. Friends, a woman is on the phone. She says, can you marry me? Can you officiate my wedding? Rabbi Lau says it would be an honor, where, when. She gives him the name of the town, two-hour drive from his home. When, the worst night for a rabbi to do a Jewish wedding, the night before Pesach. It's the busiest night for a rabbi. First of all, he got to sell the chametz for the whole town. In his case, the whole city. Besides, you got to finish cleaning your house and checking your house and clean it up from home. Besides, you got to get ready for the Seder and the matzah and the ingredients. 
besides people call all night, what do you do with a counter? And I found Cheerios, and I found bagels, and can I eat potato chips? And can you eat quinoa? And can I be a Sephardi and eat rice? And what about schug? And, and whoever invented this weird holiday and called it the holiday of emancipation and liberation? And how do you kasha granite counters? And what do I do with my microwave? And my husband decided to become stringent this year. And how are macaroons healthy, perhaps? These are the questions that rabbis get the night. And of course, Jews can't ask these questions two weeks before. One o'clock in the morning are the most questions the night before Passover. And that's when they have to come to sell their chametz. They can't come eight o'clock at night. Why would you want to give the rabbi an easy time? Again, Dallas is excluded from all of this. I know how nice and menschlichen the southern vibe that I feel here is very different. So uh, Rabbi Lau says, when are you getting married that night? He says, I can't come to a wedding then. She says, well, you have to. I said, well, get a, get a rabbi who lives right near you. She says, no, I want you. She says, why do you want me? She says, I've heard you do another wedding. And I said, you are going to do my wedding. He says, well, choose another night. She says, I'm not choosing another night. Well, he says, I can't do it. She did not stop as he put it, these words, she did not stop nudging me and driving me crazy. Could you do it a little earlier? After a few weeks, I said, okay, if you'll do this 4.30, I will be there, but I have to leave right after the chuppah because it's the busiest night of the year and I have a whole city to take care of and I have to sell the chametz and prepare for Pesach and I also have my own house and people ask, I'm going to come and go. No problem. He travels and he's there 4.30 at the chuppah of this young woman at her marriage. And sitting at the chuppah, there's an elderly man sitting on a chair. And he sees him. And the elderly man stretches out his hand and he says in Yiddish, Shalom Aleichem from Vanen Kumtayid. Welcome, where do you come from? He says, I come from Netanya. Where do you come from? He says, I'm from Argentina. He says, where do you originally come from? And the elderly man says, I come from Pietrikov. Pietrikov, a city in Poland. Did you ever hear of this city, Pietrikov? That's where I come from. And he continues and he says, and do you know who married me? Do you know who did my wedding? And do you know when he did my wedding? I'll tell you the rabbi of Pietrikov in Poland. And you know what his name was? His name was Moshe Chaim Lau. And you know where he did our wedding? When the Germans conquered Pietrikov with the rest of Poland. They quarantined all the Jews into a ghetto. And we were like sardines contained in a few blocks in Pietrikov. And I wanted to get married with my bride. So we came to Rabbi Lau, the rabbi of Pietrikov, and he said, you're going to get married in my house. And he did the wedding in his house. There were only a few people at the wedding. And then they put at the table some morsels of food that they can find in the ghetto. And we danced. And we celebrated. And we ate something. And that was our wedding. And soon after that, the transports from Pietrikov to Treblinka, began. And Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau 
with his children were sent to Treblinka, to the gas chambers. He was gassed. And his wife was murdered. But the night, a little time before the transports, I was the last wedding in Pietrikov, in the ghetto by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau. I was the last wedding. And he says, I survived. I survived Auschwitz. And the day of liberation, I came out. And I wondered if my wife survived, but there was no evidence that she survived. And it was obvious that she was killed. I managed to get a visa to South America. And I came to Argentina, alone in the world, alone in the world. And one day in 1948, I am walking in Buenos Aires. I am walking on a sidewalk. And ahead of me, I see a woman. And her gait from the back seems all too familiar. I know this woman from somewhere. I can't see her face. She's walking in front of me, but something is familiar. I run ahead. I take a look. It's my wife. I met my wife in Argentina. That night we moved into the same apartment. We didn't have to get married. We were married. None of us remarried. We were married. But it was so hard for us to have children. It took years for us to finally be blessed with a girl. One girl, a bat yechidan, only daughter, an only child. And this daughter is getting married here tonight at the chuppah. And I'm her father. I came from Argentina. This is my one daughter who was born when we were already a little older. This is where I come from. Did you ever hear of Pietrikov? Did you ever hear of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau? And the rabbi looks at him and says, my name is Moshe Chaim Lau. The rabbi of Pietrikov was my grandfather. He was the last rabbi of Pietrikov. He had many, he had a few sons. One was sent to the gas chambers with him. But he had a little boy whose name was Lulik. Lulik, Yisrael Meir Lau, the youngest Holocaust survivor. A little child, born in 1938-39. He was with his mother. And his mother had the instinct that they're going to their death. So she took her four-year-old baby and she pushed him to the other side where his 15-year-old brother, Tulek, was standing. And my father, Lulek, was crying, Mame, Mame, how could you do this? He couldn't understand how a mother can throw away her child. It took him years to understand that she saved his life as she told his older brother, watch over him. And when he was sent to Buchenwald, he got his baby brother into Buchenwald with a sack. And he went into Buchenwald and he survived. And he came to Israel. And he was raised by his uncle. And I'm his first son. And he named me after his father. Moshe Chaim Lau. I'm his oldest. I'm the rabbi of Netanya. My father is the chief rabbi, Yisrael Meir. And the man says, your father at my wedding was three, four years old running around. 
And the older man looks at him and says, your grandfather, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau, married me off right before he was sent to Treblinka and gassed. And now, decades later, his grandson in Israel marries off my daughter. They were both weeping. Rabbi Lau tells me, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, I look at this person, I say, you don't understand. Your daughter was driving me crazy to do her wedding. I was going crazy from her. She chose the worst night. And I regretted it. But now I understand why I had to come to do this wedding. And when he shared this with me, it was such a glimpse into the power of resilience and the power of history. That chain. If you were a fly on the wall in 1943 in Pietrikov and you watched the transports, you would have concluded justifiably the seed of Israel has died. But decades later, in our homeland, in the Holy Land, in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel, the grandson of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau is marrying off this daughter and continuing that chain, that eternal chain of Jewish history. That's the gift of Jewish eternity, of Jewish resilience, of Jewish identity, of Jewish existence, of Jewish pride. And this, the Talmud says, is what every father and mother have to give each one of our children. Number one, identity. Number two, a sense of inner freedom. Number three, Torah values. Number four, independence, empowerment. Well, number four, the gift of family. Number five, empowerment and independence. Number six, to be able to keep their head above water with faith and resilience. And when I look at the Torah Day School of Dallas, I see that these are the six characteristics that this great institution in Dallas imbues into each one of its 350 children. And I know that when you started off 16 and a half years ago, you started off with zero. I once asked my sister, who's a Rebetzin in Manhattan, I said, Chani, how is your financial situation? She said, we started off with nothing and we're still left with most of it. (laughs) Well, Dallas Torah Day School, you started off with zero. And only 16 years later, you have close to 400 children. One of the most glorious institutions of Judaism, not only in Texas, and not only in America, but in the world. And I say this as somebody who has the privilege to travel communities. Each one of your children, each one of your disciples, each one of your pupils comes out of this school imbued with these six timeless gifts. The gift of identity and the gift of freedom and the gift of values, character and Torah and the gift of family and the gift of independence and creativity and the gift of faith and resilience. And on this great night... When we are all, all, all here to be here for this institution. To give to this institution with our minds, with our hearts, with our souls, and with our finances and wealth. 
I bless all of us and all of you that as parents or as teachers or as leaders, we should be able to give each one of our children these priceless gifts. And may this school continue to grow from strength to strength, chazak, chazak, veniz chazak, because we don't only need this for ourselves. The world desperately needs these characteristics for their children. I was watching last week how a Hasidic rabbi from Poway, California is speaking about being a mensch and believing in life and nobody can get enough of it. Not the president could get enough of it, not journalists and not politicians. Give us more, give us more, give us more. Now Rabbi Goldstein's father's name was Uncle Yossi. He ran every Jewish rally in New York since, I don't know, since Jefferson. Like time immemorial, okay? And he composed a song. And Uncle Yossi's song, his name was Yossi Goldstein. May his soul rest in peace. Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein's father. His song went like this. He did it very slow. I'm not going to do it so slow. Hashem is here. Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere. Up, up, down, down. Right, left, and all around, here, there, and everywhere. That's where he can be found. Those were the lyrics of Uncle Yossi Goldstein. Hashem is there, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Up, up, down, down. And when we sang the song at the age of three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, we never stopped singing the song. He always had us take our index finger and point it up. Up, down, down, right, left, and all around. But last Shabbos, his son, the spiritual leader of Chabad of Poway, lost his index finger. His index finger was blown off, and the second finger was left dangling, which they saved. He told me they saved it after hours of surgery. But with that missing index finger, he taught millions of Americans to remember once again what our nation is based on, to take their index finger and to point it upwards and to rediscover God in the life of America, values in the life of America, morality in the life of America, character in the life of America. So our responsibility as leaders of this school is not only for our own children, that's first and foremost, but it's also to create moral leaders, moral teachers who will change this conversation and the landscape of a world to make it a world that is based on the great foundations of kindness and justice until the world is speedily redeemed in the ultimate redemption. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.